I wanted to dedicate this next song to the five members of the Supreme Court who have showed us that at the end of the day, they truly don't give a shit about freedom. Uh, this song goes out to the justices, Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Amy Conan Barrett, and Brett Kavanaugh. We hate you. We hate you. Supreme Court overturned the historic Roe v. Wade ruling that legalized abortion in the United States nearly 50 years ago. The decision sent shockwaves across the country and through the American labor movement, which recognizes that reproductive rights are a worker issue, affecting millions of working women and their families. Labor historian Joe McCartan argues that for most of its history, the court's just been kind of a disaster for workers. On today's show, McCartan explores that history, warning that we're not going to see a better Supreme Court when it comes to workers' rights without a movement, without something happening in the street, without a struggle. Plus, on Labor History in Two, we've got two from 1917. The first, from June 29th, is the day that American folklorist Archie Green was born in Winnipeg, Canada. The second, from July 2nd, it's the day known as the East St. Louis Race Riot. I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 1917. That was the day that American folklorist Archie Green was born in Winnipeg, Canada. His father was a Ukrainian refugee who had fought in the 1905 Russian Revolution. As a young boy, his family moved to Los Angeles. There, he enjoyed listening to cowboy songs on the radio. Archie grew up to become a shipwright and a carpenter, but he never forgot those cowboy songs. At the age of 40, he returned to college at the University of Illinois to study labor history. He wanted to learn about the songs and the stories at the heart of the U.S. labor movement. He was interested in what he dubbed labor lore, the folklore of working people. For seven years, Archie led the effort to get Congress to pass the American Folklife Preservation Act. 
Finally, in 1976, Congress unanimously supported the act. The act allowed for the founding of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. The center helps to collect the stories of the working class. Archie wrote books and essays about workers, including miners, tinsmiths, millwrights, and the Sailors Union of the Pacific. In 2007, he helped to edit the Big Red Songbook. The book includes the lyrics of nearly 200 labor songs. These songs had been included in various editions of the Little Red Songbooks published by the industrial workers of the world between 1909 and 1973. Archie Green understood that workers' stories deserved to be remembered and told. He spent five decades as a scholar and advocate for these stories. His work has helped to preserve the record of working class life in America for generations to come. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. I guess the thing that I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, Joe, is that it just seems to me that there's a, a, a misconception of the Supreme Court as, I don't want to say liberal or progressive, but because of these you know, more recent rulings, gay rights, going even back to Roe v. Wade, you know, that that these rights have been expanding in people's or their parents' living memories that people feel, you know, with with some exceptions, but they feel okay about the Supreme Court. And thanks to you, Turtledge, you know, I keep saying, hey, from working people's point of view, historically, that is simply not true. And so this extreme rightward turn that we're seeing, I I think, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, but it just seems to me from a labor point of view should be no surprise at all. For most of its history, the court's just been a disaster for workers. From a long-term historical point of view and from a labor point of view, what we're seeing in the Supreme Court in recent years is a kind of reversion to form. Um, You know, there was a brief period between the 30s and the 70s where the court was more pro-worker than it ever been before or since. Um, and there are things that it did in the period since the 60s that helped, you know, the reputation continue to survive, um, that it was somewhat of a guardian of individual rights. I think um, you see this um, in uh, what it did on some civil rights issues in the 60s, for example, getting rid of the poll tax, um, what it did on um, women's issues when it came to reproductive choice in the Roe v. Wade decision, what it did for you know uh, the rights of LGBTQ people in the Obergefell decision even recently, right? Well, as conservative as it's become in recent years, the court still did do Obergefell. Obergefell and um, I would say Roe, what they were about though was individual rights. And the court is a lot more, um, has been historically able to recognize individual rights. Collective rights is really where the court always had a problem. And that's where labor always came out and still continues to come out on the short end of the stick legally. Uh, overwhelmingly uh, in the Supreme Court and its history. Um, Worker rights, um, ultimately, you know, workers don't have much power as individuals. Um, And uh, for workers to exercise power and voice really requires them to be able to develop a collectivity. 
it's there that the Supreme Court has always, uh, you know, um, been at best a grudging acceptor of that. And the grudging acceptance goes back to the decision NLRB versus Jones and Laughlin in 1937. It was announced in April of that year. Um, it was a decision that was announced after Roosevelt threatened to pack the court and after he'd been reelected by a, a record margin. Uh, and it was only then that the court started to grudgingly, okay, they would accept uh, the Wagner Act, which they did uh, with that decision. But um, the court, you know, has, has for most of its history been a place where corporate lawyers ended up. Um, that was um, that was how most Supreme Court justices started out. Um, Katenji Brown Jackson um, recently elevated to the court and will soon take her seat on it. That's an unusual figure in the court's history, just as Thurgood Marshall was. People who defended the, um, the accused very often. Um, those kind of people haven't historically found their way to the bench. Uh, quick, and I, it may be a side note, or it may actually be uh, related. I was looking at my daily labor history, uh, and I noticed on June 29th of 34, Roosevelt signs an executive order establishing the National Labor Relations Board. But it also says here that there was a predecessor organization, the National Labor Board, which was established by the National Industrial Recovery Act in 33, mm -hmm. and was struck down by the Supreme Court in 34. Um, what's the background on that? The court said that Congress had delegated too much power to the code authorities that were set up by um, the National Industrial Recovery Act to, to try to organize uh, industry to deal with the depression. Um, and it's probably true that the National Industrial Recovery Act did delegate too much power in that way because it was a unanimous decision that included even liberals like uh, Oliver Wendell uh, Holmes or Louis D. Brandeis. Um, and so those, those figures also um, disagreed with that. But the court had been hostile to the early New Deal legislation. That, that's true, not only in striking down um, the National Industrial Recovery Act with what was called the Schechter decision, but also knocking down the uh, Agricultural Adjustment Act and some other uh, elements of the New Deal as well. So again, the, the shift that happens after 1936 where the court backed away, that, that probably wouldn't have happened without a overwhelming re-election for Roosevelt, the people basically saying we want more of these programs, and without Roosevelt also kind of taking on the court, uh, which he threatened to do by expanding its um, its membership. And, and that latter thing might be a thing that we hear more and more about today, given the recent decisions by the court, which increasingly are 6-3 decisions that overturn not only Roe Ro most recently, but, uh, you know, have overturned lots of precedents as well. Just a few years ago, um, this court overthrew a precedent uh, in, the, in the public sector that allowed for the funding of public sector unions by the people they represent um, with the Janus versus AFSCME decision. That was also taking a, a case that seemed to be settled law uh, and basically saying, no, it's not settled anymore uh, and, and overturning the precedent that had dated back to 1977. 
Well, and let's dive into that for a second, because one of the things uh, that that uh, Samuel Moyne points out in, in this article uh, is, is about that. And he says that Alito doesn't mention that he's regularly voted legislation that expresses a popular will. And he cites Janice versus Ask Me. So you know, my you know, a, a big rationale for overturning Roe v. Wade is, hey, let's let the people speak. Let's turn it back to the states and let them decide. But what you're saying, I think, is that, uh, except in the cases of things like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so what am I missing here? I mean, it seems well, completely I think, inconsistent. I think, I think, yeah, I think what what the through line there is is that let the people decide if they're likely to decide our way. And I think that um, in the case of Janice versus Ask Me, they wanted to, to you know, disempower states from having laws like the one in Michigan that originally set the precedent. So, you know, this court has shown hostility to letting the people decide when they don't like what the people might decide. Uh, and in the case of um, overturning Roe, I think, you know, up until that decision, Roe held in every state. And now, it only holds in the states where people uh, will uphold it, um, or the principles behind Roe at least. Roe itself is gone. But the idea that abortion should be legal will only be true in some states now and not others. And, you know, there are some I know in the, in the movement against abortion who believe that they just took half a loaf in this decision, that they'll be coming back for more. Uh, and I'd be surprised, given the, the nature of uh, Alito's opinion, if he didn't try to give them more next time. Um, and, and that could have to do with uh, restrictions that could reach into states where abortion is still uh, allowed, or it could tend in the direction of recognizing uh, rights to personhood of the fetus from the moment of conception. Um, so, um, how that will play out is unclear. Um, however, you can see a, a sort of parallel between how this court handles some of these kinds of issues regarding reproductive rights and some of the ways it's handled labor issues. So, yeah, I wanted to, to talk about that a, a bit as, as we wrap up. Carol Meyerson just did a really good piece in the American's Prospect likening this decision to the Dred Scott decision. Um, and I'm probably oversimplifying, but essentially, Pointing out that you know Dred Scott, by you know which was a ruling on slavery, and and basically you know I think Harold was pointing out that Dred Scott you know disenfranchised an entire race and overturning Roe v. Wade disenfranchises an entire gender. How this is going to play out, you know, is is really hard to foresee. It's a it's an earthquake, um, and and you know there's no denying of that. And you know I think um, Harold Meyerson's um, pointing out that it could have an impact as huge as Dred Scott, I think cannot be dismissed. One thing it has in common is that the implications of a decision in one place could be expanded to others. Mm. Um, and uh, that um, puts to the test uh, the, the whole concept of federalism in the United States. And it's been a, you know, a thing that's been fought over for many years. Um, how much power should the federal government have to protect rights? How much should go to the states? Um, for a long time, that question revolved around the labor question uh, and the race question. 
And both of those things shaped how federalism was argued over for many years. Now, increasingly, I think perhaps gender and reproductive rights could shape how federalist issues are, are argued about as we go forward. Two other questions that occur to me. One is the idea that you know abortion and, and reproductive rights is, is a labor issue. And I'd just love to get a sort of a historical take on that from, from a labor history point of view. Well, I think one place where these things really intersect is in working women's lives, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. where, you know, working and deciding when and how to have your family, this is a, a delicate balance for many people, um, and for most people, I would say. And so reproductive rights and working lives, uh, they intersect, they can't help but intersect. And so, you know, in a certain way, I think this issue will resonate um, broadly among workers. And, you know, let's face it, in complicated ways, because this is a diverse and complicated country with people who have differing views on these issues. But one thing is clear is that they affect everybody, even if everybody doesn't necessarily look at them the same way. And I think that's a, that's a, a challenge for the labor movement, some of whose members, no doubt, support the Supreme Court decision. Most of whom, whose members, like most of the country, probably do not. Um, the labor movement in this country has constantly been challenged by uh, the effort to build solidarity among people who might not agree about everything. Um, and so the labor movement will have to navigate a way of dealing with this question as a labor issue, um, but also mindful that it's a diverse labor movement and a, a labor movement trying to become more diverse. How do you deal with that? And, and no doubt its younger members, I think, are going to be among those who push hardest for taking on an issue like this and, and really making it a priority for unions. So we'll, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. Moyne wraps up with saying something that, that you referred to, and I just sort of wanted you to, to finish up with this. He says that the landmark civil rights and personal rights decisions were possible only because political movements created the preconditions for the justices to rule as they did, and that the justices began to whittle those same rulings down as soon as popular support for them waned. And so, again, looking at it through labor history is I think a lot of people are just really panicking and, 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 you know, and I think that there's, you know, a lot of reason for that uh, right now, but I, I guess what I'm wondering is looking at it from a historical point of view, how does that look to you? You know, I think Moyne is, is so right. Uh, and, you know, to, to return to center on the labor question here at the end, we're not going to see progress uh, on, labor law reform, we're not gonna see a better Supreme Court when it comes to workers' rights without a movement, without something happening in the streets, without a struggle. I think as we look around today, we do see evidence, especially from younger people, that they want to engage with this issue and that they're ready to build a movement. Just to take one example, what's been happening in these Starbucks stores around the country, which I think is um, just like the the sense of a wave building is what you feel around that. And um, 
it's that kind of thing that's going to be necessary before we ever have a court system that responds to workers' rights. Um, before before people respect workers' rights, before the courts do that, historically, as we've said, they've tended not to do it. Patrick and I, I just got back from the Labor Notes Conference, and you just got this sense that these these were not folks who were who were going to take any shit. Yeah, I think there's something generational that's building, uh, and if you look across our institutions. Um, you know, so many of our institutions now are run by a gerontocracy, it seems, you know, um, and uh, like younger people are, are impatient, I think, with the leadership of many of our social institutions. And so, um, you know, we're bound to see um, more evidence of that, I think, in the times ahead. I love the way that, that these folks at Starbucks and Amazon uh, are not too concerned about the niceties of labor law. You know, they're just like, nah, we'll, we'll just organize and, and act like we're a union and y'all can sort that shit out. <laughs> right. Well, in, in a way, I think that that's, that's so refreshing and so necessary because if we continue to think in inside the box that we've been forced into over the decades, uh, I don't see how we get out of that box. So I think that that kind of thinking is really refreshing and, and really needed at this time. Yeah, Joe McCartan, wonderful to have some historical perspective, uh, as always, especially in times like this. Really appreciate it. Great to talk to you, as always, Chris. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1917. That was the day known as the East St. Louis Race Riot. It is considered the worst case of labor-related violence of the 20th century and one of the worst race riots in American history. At the time, East St. Louis, Illinois, was an industrial hub along the Mississippi River across from St. Louis, Missouri. Production demands for World War I intensified the Great Migration. As African Americans emigrated from the South, filling the demand for industrial labor, tensions grew at workplaces and in the communities in which they settled. That spring, black and white workers had been hired to scab on a local strike. The violence began on May 28th when trade unionists marched to the mayor's office protesting the black labor they considered unfair competition. It quickly turned into an anti-black riot. The National Guard was called out to quell the violence. And on this day, two days of rioting began when a car of white men drove through a black neighborhood and fired at a group of blacks. Racist mobs killed as many as 200 African Americans. 6,000 more were left homeless. Many remarked bitterly that the police and National Guard stood by, indifferent to the race violence around them. The president of the Illinois Federation of Labor insisted that employers were to blame for using Southern blacks to break the back of labor. Socialist Party leader Eugene V. Debs declared that the riots were, quote, a foul blot upon the labor movement. Debs continued, had the labor movement freely opened their doors to the Negro instead of barring him, the atrocious crime of East St. Louis would have never blackened the pages of American history. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on the Twitters at Labor History in Two.
That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. Hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please be sure to take a moment, share it with someone you think would enjoy the show. That's how we keep this history alive and how we build the audience for the show. Thanks so much. Thanks, as always, to Labor History in Two. It's a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Our music today was Fuck You, dedicated to the five Supreme Court justices who voted to overturn Roe v. Wade and performed by Olivia Rodrigo and Lily Allen at the 2022 Glastonbury Music Festival. I'd say Olivia and Lily pretty much nailed it. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks so much for listening. Keep making history and see you next time. You say you think we need to go to war. Well, you're already in one. Because it's people like you that need to get through. No one wants